Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Just a few days left before we gather in Ann Arbor, Monday, August 5th at 7 p.m. to continue our WDET book club. We are reading together Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, and talking about the Flint water crisis, uh, environmental policy, infrastructure, all of the issues that kind of spring from the text of that book. Uh, On Monday, we're going to be joined by Senator Jeff Irwin, who represents Ann Arbor in the legislature. And we're going to talk with Michigan Radio's investigative reporter, Lindsay Smith, someone who did a lot of the work uncovering what happened to cause the Flint water crisis. So we would love to see you there to continue this conversation. And uh, if you need more information, you can go to WDET.org slash events. You can also go to the WDET Summer Book Club Facebook page uh, where we are having a pretty robust discussion this summer about uh, what the eyes don't see and these issues. So again, we hope to see you in Ann Arbor uh, on Monday. That's at the Ann Arbor Public Library downtown, uh, 7 p.m., and uh, we'll see you there. Up first today, do you remember learning to read? It's as if a whole world opens up and suddenly you're granted access to new ideas, far-off places, historical figures, and so much more. As you get further along, there's room for analysis, critique, and then creative writing of your own. Now, imagine trying to do that all while you are in prison, which is not exactly the most conducive environment for literacy learning. But our next guest has been bringing language, literature, and creative writing to a high-security men's prison since 2007. Deborah Appleman is author of the book, Words No Bars Can Hold, and I'm really glad to welcome her to Detroit today uh, to talk about this work. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. So uh, let's start with uh, your work teaching literacy in prison. Uh, Talk about what those classes entail and talk about how important that work is given the population that you're working with. Um, Thank you. I've Um, taught a variety of classes in a high-security prison from introduction to literature to creative writing. And uh, I try very hard to have the classes feel and seem very much like the classes that I teach at my liberal arts college or classes that I've taught as a high school teacher as well. And at first that can seem kind of strange that in that uh, environment that I would be able to do that. But that is a really important key to the success, that the processes between teachers and students are normative, that there's no ways in which the students are condescended to, and that I offer them the same kinds of uh, challenging lessons and actually high expectations as well. They're very much aware when they're being talked down to or Mm -hmm. condescended or infantilized in particular ways. So I found that the pedagogy that has worked for me in my four decades of teaching in other spaces actually works quite well with just a few modifications in the prison. And in terms of how important it is, to the men, it's 
the one of the most important things that they can engage in because even though their bodies can be incarcerated, their minds can't. No one can really imprison your mind. And so they are able to um, exercise a kind of intellectual autonomy. I think another thing that I've learned that I hope the book will show is that um, our, the general population has no idea of who it is actually that we incarcerate mm. and what their characteristics are. We focus only on their crime, and that's understandable. But there are some incredibly intelligent people who are incarcerated, who are yearning to exercise their intellectual capacities. And it's really important, I think, for us as a society and for them individually to give them the opportunity to do just that. Hmm. So I, I want to go back really quickly to something that you started with in, in, in that first answer. This idea of teaching classes in a prison the same way you would teach classes at a college. I think that gets to, to um, a pretty important concept with, with literacy, which is that it is not just about mechanics. It is not just about knowing how to read, but it is about the appreciation of words and ideas, the power of words and ideas, and that that's a universal uh, importance. In, and so whether you're teaching uh, five-year-olds to read, whether you're teaching uh, college kids to, to think, you know, complex, um, uh, com complex uh, things about text, or whether you're teaching prisoners uh, to read, that that idea of the importance of words and ideas and the full kind of um, context of those things, the sort of enjoyment, uh, pleasure. Uh, of of reading is is really key to to making sure that it actually accomplishes what it's supposed to to do. You're not just learning the mechanics of reading. Absolutely, I think what's really important about your point is that there are ways in which the context of seeing people read and enjoy texts in prison kind of helped me understand the importance of it in the outside world. Mm. The fact that even within that carceral state, they're able to be transported. Emily Dickinson once wrote, there is no frigate like a book. And, you know, I think that sometimes we think that the joy of reading is this specialized erudite exercise that can only be afforded to um, the privileged or people who have a lot of um, free time on their hands. And, you know, I became a teacher because I believed in the power of words and I believed in the power of literacy and the joy of reading to transport us from one, one from one world to the next and to be able to understand the worlds that we entered through text and seeing that it, that it works even, even in the dark, right, mm. of um, the prison context is something that has been really gratifying for me. Also, as a person who teaches at a liberal arts college and all kind of higher education has been challenged by its cost and often its impracticality because we're not training people for jobs. We're training people um, to really enjoy and understand, interpret, and analyze, as you said in your introduction. And many, 
most of the men that I work with have no outdate. They're not getting out. They're not going to have a job on the outside. And so reading can only have value intrinsically. Um, Intellectual activity um, only has the value for itself. And so there are weird ways in which it's the purest exercise of liberal arts education because there are no pragmatic or occupational um, ramifications of it. So so tell me more about the response that you get from uh, the prisoners that you're working with. This is uh, a lot of what uh, you are explicating in the book that you've written about uh, right. about this work. Right. So um, the response has been really incredible. And I started, in, as you said, um, in 2007, and um, it's been one of the most gratifying um, kinds of teaching that I've ever done. They're really hungry for it. They... Um, well, I'm shocked uh, initially um, by how much they're, they've been reading on their own. Um, they've been teaching themselves in some ways. They've been hungry for reading because it's one of their um, main um, connections to the outside world. And because, because the, the conditions of incarceration um, serve to dehumanize, they're addressed by a number, the amount of time they spend in a shower is dictated, their you know, freedom obviously is curtailed. The only way that most prisons can work is to not treat people like human beings as you put them in cages overnight and really restrict almost every aspect of their uh, behavior. So they come to the classroom hungry um, to really be able to reclaim their humanity, and they're grateful for it. They're also really aware of the fact that I don't have to be there. Mm. So it's a vo- it's a voluntary thing. I don't get paid. I have a full time job. I'm not the only one who does this. It's not about my effort. It's about their gratitude for it. They sort of so clearly and deeply recognize um, the gestures that people make toward them and for them, and they are able to express their gratitude by really focusing on the work that we are trying to engage in together. Um, So it's it's been a terrifically gratifying experience, and I think the response has been um, really encouraging. Um, And also, at the same time, um, discouraging in the sense that it's hard for them to think about, now what do I do with this new knowledge? You know, where, where do I put it? Does it make my incarceration sometimes even harder to bear because I'm thinking about it in more philosophical and existential terms? So, so that's in some ways one of the downsides of it, that, you know, when you are incarcerated and wake up every morning to the same gray existence that's going to go on and on and on? What are the ways in which you need to sort of think through it or maybe sometimes not think through it? So there's a tension between becoming more and more aware of what's outside and more and more aware of your own capacity as a thinker, 
a reader and a writer and the current state of your incarceration. What some have done is to reach on the outside by publishing their work, and they've been pretty successful in do, in doing that. And I'm I'm really proud of all of their work that's out there in the world. And that's another one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book mm. to to show their work. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you have changed or or what experience uh, you've had with change uh, interacting with with prisoners this way. I mean, most of us don't get an opportunity to have this kind of interaction with people who are incarcerated. Uh, Doing this for as long as you have, I would imagine that uh, you've noticed some changes in yourself. Yes, I I have. I think that um, for one thing... um, I, I began as a confident teacher, but like, <laughs> no one can take me off my game. So when I teach a summer program for high school students, and I have a 16-year-old boy who's being a tiny bit oppositional, hmm. um, you know, it's <laughs> kind of like I'm so secure in the fact that, um, you know, as a person who teaches murderers, there's not going to be very much that a 16-year-old can bring to like <laughs> intimidate me. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> Too bad for that 16-year-old, but I, I think that one of the keys of successful teaching is to be really confident and secure in one's pedagogy, and even though I feel like I have been, I feel like it's been tested in ways that I never imagined that it would be. I also think that maybe one of the biggest lessons I've learned is from one of my um, formerly incar- now incarcerated students, which is one of the epigrams of the book. He keeps company with... John Dewey at the front of the book, and he said that everyone's better than the worst they've ever done. And one of the things I learned as a early, um, early as a young teacher is to try to separate the behavior from the person. That's one of the first really cardinal rules of being a teacher. That when you have someone acting out in your in your regular classroom, you need to address the behavior and not be judgmental of the student. And so that's that's exaggerated in the context of prison where I can't I actually have never looked up any of my incarcerated students. Um, you can look them up on a Department of Corrections public website, which is kind of every state has it. But I've never looked any of them up. So even people that I've worked with for 12 years, I don't know their crime. I can imagine what it is given wow. their sentence. But I don't want my interaction with them and our experience to be framed by that crime because every other aspect of their life is. So I feel that I've learned to focus on the individual, not on what individuals have done, not on what they and did, focus sure. on the importance of redemption um, and forgiveness and the human capacity for change. Yeah, uh, One of the things that uh, you've said is important to you is to put the stories of these men first, to kind right. of avoid creating the the hero narrative for for yourself and and to emphasize what's happening to them. Um, how, how do you strive to do that each day? Right. I really appreciate that question, Stephen, because I, I one of the things that I write about is 
you know, this kind of idea of the hero narrative, and it often crosses racial lines where a well-meaning white woman goes into a space with um, lots of um, folks of color, and is it's going to demonstrate um, their their heroic capacity. And we have those tropes, you know, with um, freedom writers and Michelle Pfeiffer movies and all different kinds of things. And there's a, a concept in education called the white lady bountiful, where, you know, there's this trope of, of magnanimousness and it's about them. So when I wrote the book, I tried to have myself be an on-ramp to them, um, but the book isn't about my experiences teaching at a high-security prison. Those experiences are the gateway to, I hope, a larger conversation about the importance of education in incarcerated spaces, about the wealth of talent and intelligence that lives behind bars, and about something that you started with, which is simply the power of words and learning and literacy and reading to transform us, that they're part of the human spirit. Um, and it actually is what makes us fully human. So I had to, of course, use the first person, but I tried very, very hard not to tell stories about me, but to have it be um, about them. And actually, one of my students published a book called This is Where I Am with the University of Minnesota Press, and I had to just kind of wait and make sure that his book got out in the world. It's complicated. We have a victim's rights um, organization that has to vet everything and make sure it doesn't bump up against different kinds of regulations of what incarcerated people can do. And I felt that it was more important for his book to be out in the world first. And only when his was out and published did I think that I could maybe do a book as well. Um, so I've tried to have it not be about me, but have it be about them, which is why so much of the space, I hope, is devoted to them. And I, I, it was a tricky thing to do, but um, I did my best to succeed that way. Okay. Deborah Appleman, author of Words No Bars Can Hold. It's been really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your interest in the book and, most importantly, in them. Okay, up next, we're going to get a preview of a tour that shows people the burgeoning world of urban farms and gardens right here in Detroit, along with the community leaders who make all of that possible. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.